0: this morning please it has been a good morning good singing beautiful choir special beautiful offertory thank you so much all of you involved in that Ephesians chapter number 1 last week our portion was second corinthians chapter 5 and we kind of talked about the basic human problem of selfishness the the preacher in hebrews frames it as a great salvation and part of the greatness of our salvation folks is god's conquest of what is so terribly wrong with us. And, and that's a hard pill to swallow. But that really is in some ways kind of the focus of the message this morning. And then we're going to spend a few weeks trying to turn our attention a little more positively, I guess. But let's go ahead and stand, please. I want to begin in verse number 15 of Ephesians chapter number 1. And we're going to read into Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians 1.15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fulfillment of him that filleth all in all. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also, we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And let's pray. Father, it is, of course, our prayer that you would work powerfully in our nation. It is our prayer that you would work powerfully in the world for the greatness of your name. But our prayer specifically for these next few moments is that you would work among us, your people, gather together at Westwood Heights Baptist Church to worship you by giving good attention to your word, not just now, but in the lives that we lead. Help us, please, open our eyes. Grant to us this grace and wisdom that you extended to the Ephesians in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, Ephesians is probably the greatest and the most prominent of the New Testament churches. It is the first church in the book of Revelation. It is yet another church that Paul started. Timothy will number among its pastors And in this letter, Paul points out to them that the glory of God is manifested to the church and then through the church, to us, and then through us to an unbelieving world. The church is God's only program in this time. And although this is a bit off subject this morning, it is something that I do intend to tackle in a few weeks when I talk about our future, my future, at Westwood Heights on Wednesday nights. I wonder sometimes if the New Testament church is not actually being suffocated by all of the help it is receiving. Follow of the many helpers that want to come alongside the church and assist it are not actually doing it damage. This is even further off subject, but C.S. Lewis made mention one time of a woman whose life's work was to help other people. And you could tell who the others were from the hunted expression on their faces. And I feel sometimes like the church is ever in peril of being helped to death. It is a serious, again, still off track for this morning's message, it is a serious thought and one worth considering, folks, as to how much help the church really needs and where that help should come from. The church is God's program. And the church are the people, and the people are those for whom Christ died and who have believed. This is a book that explains what the church is and how the church should behave. Because again, it is the grace of God to the church and the grace or the glory of God to the church and the glory of God through the church. In this passage this morning, and I kind of want to begin in the middle of what Paul said, I want to call your attention to three separate and distinct and yet interconnected points that Paul makes to the church. The first, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is the de- desperateness of our condition apart from Christ. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past she walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, The Spirit now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul just piles up the condemnation of humanity. One of the main underlying assumptions of the world you and I live in is that it is basically a good world. That it is basically a good place. That people are basically good in their deeds and in their desires. Now it's true that we don't always do good. There are a few bad apples that will spoil everything. And we promise you that if we could just have more money and more equality, and more education, that we could fix that. It is very hard for us to bring ourselves to accept the Bible definition of us, the Bible explanation of us. My wife and I were watching. I really don't remember what exact show it was. It was one of those competition shows where people are eliminated and I just said to her, have you ever noticed that the people who are eliminated never deserved to be eliminated at that time? Nobody gets interviewed after they're eliminated and go, you know what, I'm just really not very good at this. It's just a marvel that I got here at all. But far more often it's the judges made a mistake I didn't deserve. To. I can do better. This wasn't my, I can do better. And you haven't seen the last of me. I'll be back. We just cannot accept ourselves to bear the reality that the world is what it is because we are what we are. And even among those of us who believe the Bible, there is great reluctance to accept the Bible's testimony of how bad we are and how hopeless we were. So over the next few minutes, it is not the entirety of the message, but it is a large part of the message this morning, I would encourage you to listen carefully, not to Ken Largent speak, but to God speak. And here is what God says about us. He says it about us, and He says it, therefore, about our children and our parents and our grandparents and our grandchildren. We were dead spiritually. We were dead spiritually. You hath he quickened, who were dead. And trespasses and sins. He's not talking about dead physically. This is the death of our relationship with God. Trespasses. God set boundaries. We broke them. Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 7 that part of the function of the law is to, like a, to be like a great keep off the grass sign. As soon as you see one, you're almost overcome with an urge to step on the grass that the law is like a great wet paint sign. The minute you see a wet paint sign, you want to stick your finger into it. One of the things that the law does is stir up our sinfulness, almost as if it throws down the gauntlet. You can't do this. Well, you just watch me. God set boundaries. We break them. We are watching the dissolution of a nation over the boundary of gender. gender. One of the last boundaries that there is. Sins, we broke his rules. And according to chapter 2 and verse number 3, this is every last man, woman, and child among whom also we all. We all. We were dead spiritually. Not only were we dead spiritually or because we were dead spiritually, we were enslaved behaviorally. We walked, verse number two, according to the course of this world. The word course is actually the word eon. Anybody ever ask you if you speak Greek, you can say, yes, I know the word eon. It is the Greek word, E-O-N. A span of time is what it means. A span of time. That's what an eon is. It's a span of time. One of the things that the Bible seems to do without going all into it and tracing it down. The Bible seems to treat eternity not as a single monolithic entity, but as a series of passages of time. The ages and the ages, the eons and the eons, the spans and the spans. In Paul's mind, it was the seat of life. We walked in this age according to the world's arrangement, the cosmos, the way things operate. This is what we all did. This was what drove every one of us being spiritually dead. We were not physically dead. We lived, we have minds, we breathed. we thought, and yet what controlled us was the age in which we lived, the way things are. But why are they the way they are? Why are they the way they are? And that is because there is a power in the air, an unseen power. That's Paul's explanation. That's God's explanation. That's the Bible's explanation. Verse number two wherein in time past ye walked according to the course, the eon of this cosmos, this arrangement. Who was determining the way things were? Prince, the power of the air. Not the Democratic Party. Not CNN. Not even Fox News. And this air, folks, because it is the nature of air, air is everywhere. And yet it is always manifested in people. It is the spirit that now worketh, verse number two, in the children of disobedience. They are disobedient by nature. They are disobedient. Our heroes, our heroes are rebels. It's who we love, it's who we like. Our favorite movies are people who go against the flow, who are anti establishment, who are lone crusaders against evil. Disobedience is the air we breathe. God has boundaries, God has rules, and is the very core of my being to look at them and disregard them and flaunt them. But it doesn't look like that to me. A lost person, as a lost person, I didn't get out of bed and think, I serve you, Satan, today. I got out of bed and I thought, I serve me. This is the way that Paul frames it in verse number three Among whom also we all had our conversation. This was the way we lived. And how did we all try to live? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's invisible. Believers don't see him. Unbelievers don't see him. We just think we're doing our own thing. We just think we're having it our own way. We think life is a gigantic Burger King. That we can have all that we want. And if you just want it badly enough, and if you're willing to pay any price... If you're willing to make any sacrifice, you can have almost anything you want. I point out to you folks that it is not necessary for you to think of Satan as being some on some kind of personal crusade against you. He doesn't need to go after you personally when the entire system is in place and that the entire system's entire purpose is set up to appeal to our sinful desires, to break God's boundaries, to violate his rules. That is the whole, that is the whole system. That is, that is the whole game. That is the course of the age. Peter tells us, or Hebrews tells us in 2.15 that he takes advantage of us through fear of death. I like to feel alive because one of these days we're going to die. So we are dead spiritually, Paul says. We are enslaved behaviorally. We don't, we don't make any choices. We don't feel any obligation to make any choices. Everybody that we know does this. We all just want to take care of us. We want to satisfy our desires. We don't all have the same desires, but we all have the same appetite to satisfy whatever desires we have and therefore we are folks finally condemned eternally verse number 3 among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature the children of wrath even as others that's not the wrath of the prince of the power of the air that's the wrath of God We were by nature. We were children in verse number 2. A word that really describes kinship, right? He's He's not making the argument there that somehow our physical parent was disobedience. But that disobedience is, again to use the word of our generation, is in our DNA. We're hardwired to be disobedient. But in verse number 3, it's a little bit different word. It's a little bit more if possible, a little bit more of intimate word. We are by nature the children. We are the offspring. And that word nature is another word that you know. It is the, in Greek, it is the word physics. It is the state of condition. Right? Here's, here's one. I mean, right? Paul is arguing a series of facts. Here is a fact. The fact is that all human beings were born spiritually dead. Here is another fact. In conjunction with the lusts of our our flesh and of our minds, under the operation of the power of the air, we we are enslaved in our behavior. And yet here is another fact. The state of our nature is condemnation. Condemnation. Paul will write later in the book, Ephesians 5, 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words. Don't let the psychiatrists and the psychologists and the sociologists and the educators and the politicians, don't let the physicians, don't even let the health and wellness prosperity gospel preachers tell you anything else. Be not deceived with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Therefore, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness. Once upon a time, we constituted the very darkness God hates. But now are ye light. Walk as children. There's that word again. Walk as the little offspring of light. So Paul wants us to know how desperate our condition was. We were spiritually dead behaviorally enslaved, eternally condemned. That is the state, folks, of humanity. That is the world into which humanity is is born. Secondly, Secondly, Paul wants the church and therefore us to know the depth of God's mercy. Verse number four. But God. but God who is rich in mercy. It would have been no injustice, folks. It would have been no injustice at all for God to allow the entire mass of humanity to die and go to hell. At any given dot on the line could have said to Adam and Eve, too late, you're done. Two human beings condemned eternally. He could do it today with equal justification and equal righteousness 7 billion human beings you have all sinned you sinned in Adam you sinned in your own right you're all condemned but God is rich in mercy for his great love with wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins Paul will make the point more pointedly in the book of Romans Christ died for the ungodly not for the righteous, not for the good, not for the trying, not for the sincere. He died for the ungodly. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us, given us life is the idea, together with Christ. By grace you are saved. So Paul wants us to know not only the desperateness of our own condition, but the depth of God's mercy. It is all the sweeter, folks. The better we understand how terrible we were, the more we will appreciate how gracious God has been. God is not only rich in mercy, he is rich in grace. Grace. that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus, verse number 7. So in verses 4 through 6, Paul points out that God is rich in mercy, and in verses 7 through 10, he points out that God is rich in grace. So that rather suffer the eternal wrath that we deserve, verse number 3, we experience all the glory that God can give us. verses 6 through 10. And it is for this reason, folks, it is because of the relationship between human sinfulness and God's mercy that it is essential to understand that the only way to obtain the necessary righteousness is by faith. This is why Paul deals with it here. Verse number 8, for by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Don't find some ambiguity in verse number 8 that isn't there, folks. Paul is being very clear that even the faith that we have to save us is God's gift to us. We bring absolutely nothing to the equation. I haven't lost my train of thought. I'm trying to think through something. I always get myself in trouble when I go off. When I go off script. I'm not going to go there. That's for a Sunday school lesson. God's grace being essential. God's faith being a gift. Not of works lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. We will eventually look at this passage, I think, on Sunday mornings, but in Romans chapter 4, Paul goes to great lengths to point out that always and only salvation is by grace through faith. It's never been any other way for any other person, and it never will be. And God is rich in grace so that in the ages to come. So that in the ages to come, verse number 7. And we've already read that word because it is the word course in verse number 2. That in the eons that come, in the waves of time that come, here's what God is going to do he is going to put on display the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ. The eternal monument of our eternal salvation will be the grace of God shown us through Christ. This is perhaps a very feeble and maybe even a carnal illustration, but... Supposing you remodel one of the rooms in your house, and you put all kinds of effort into thinking how you want it to look and spending the money to get it just right, and all the labor that it takes, and the craftsmen who work to make it so, and you invite somebody over so that they can look at your new room, and all they want to talk about is their house. Yeah, 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 yeah you, that's really nice what you did, but let me tell you about me. And I would point out to you folks that in verse number seven, if I can get just slightly technical, that the word that in verse number seven is a very critical word. It means in order that. It is the purpose statement. It is the explanation. Here's the cruel from our standpoint, not the Bible standpoint. But here's the reality from our standpoint. God did not save us to keep us out of hell. God saved us so that he could demonstrate his grace to us. So that we would always see it. So that it would be a part of the eternal testimony and monument. That in the ages to come, he might show it. It will not just be some bygone thing hey, here I am in heaven, I'm having a great time, shot a great round of golf today, going to have a lavish meal. One of the things I love most about heaven is you can eat all day long and never gain weight. No, folks, the focus of heaven will be the grace of God to us, shown through Christ. And if I need to say this, if anybody should think, and I don't think that any of us would think it, If anybody should think that God would not really send people to hell, just remember this. He sentenced his own son to it. If he refused to spare his own son, he will not spare our sons. So Paul wants the church to know The desperateness of our condition, we were spiritually dead, enslaved in disobedience, eternally condemned. And God wants us to know the depth of His mercy and grace. He saved us out of that. And we will never forget, not for a millisecond, that God has shown us this kindness. And now if I could direct your attention backwards to where Paul really begins this with the Ephesians. He wants them to know the sufficiency of God's saving power. He wants them to know this. That the God who saved us out of our desperate condition, folks, did a great work. We were in a bad way When I heard verse 15 that you believed in Jesus I immediately began to pray this way for you. This is the thing that was paramount to me. As soon as I heard of your conversion, this was where my prayer went. This is very helpful folks. I mean this right when on those rare occasions when somebody becomes a new believer, here's how to pray for them. Here's how to pray for a new believer. Wherefore I also, verse 15, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I want you to know I want you to know this is something that God has to give us, folks, to know the hope that we have. Verse number 18. We have hope because of the work of Christ. Just take verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 at face value. How desperate our condition, our hope is Christ. Our hope is Christ. But it isn't just hope, folks. It is wealth, verse number 18. What the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We have true spiritual wealth. This is one of the reasons that being miserly with God in our material wealth is so egregious. Is because of the riches that God has lavished upon us by killing his son. For our sin. And Paul wants them to know the greatness of his power. These are things we need to comprehend. Hope. Hope. We have a hope in Christ. That we have no other place. This world, folks. This world that we I don't want to say we love hating, but we are so willing to hate. This is a world without hope. If they are not saved, they have no hope. And we who are saved are not poor. We are not poor, we are rich. The riches of Christ belong to us. And so does the greatness of God's power, verses 19 through 23. That's what Paul wishes for them. You know, folks, there's a lot of talk in Christianity about getting more. getting a second blessing, getting more, getting more, getting more. But Paul is taking the position in verses 19 through 23 that we've, we've gotten it all. Now this doesn't mean there isn't sanctifying work that involves some of our labor on our end, but we have it all. Let me read to you the way Peter puts it, 2 Peter 1:2 Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. It is all there, folks. It is. It is all given to us in Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.19, that what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The greatest miracle with the greatest accomplishment putting him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And everything is under his feet and he is the head of all things. And folks, we have access to him. We have access to God in a way that we don't have access to our governor or our president or our mayor or even our city councilman. We have access to God. Now certainly the context here is very clear that we need a greater understanding at times of this and a greater faith in this. But God has done all that is necessary and all that is needed. And God is not withholding good things from us, particularly for sinister purposes. So here is, in Paul's opening to the church, a message to all churches, what we need to know, the desperateness of our condition and the depth of God's mercy and grace and the sufficiency of our salvation. Paul then will, in chapter 4, when he turns his attention toward the human conduct side of the equation, well, let me just read to you his introduction. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Because again, folks, the church is not simply the recipient of God's grace. It is not just simply that God's grace comes to us. But through the activity of the church, God's grace is extended to the world. Evangelism, prayer, righteous living, shining the light of godly living in the world. Walk worthy of the vocation that we have. Let's pray this morning. Father.